0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. the first time in my life that uh, I've preached in a worship service without a specific text. He got very nervous and thought probably I shouldn't be preaching But uh, I want to to reassure him and you that uh, what I plan to say is from the Scriptures. Uh, I'm just not expounding one particular passage in Scripture, but to settle our minds on Scripture, let me read from two passages uh, very briefly, the first Romans chapter 1 and from verse 19. Can we use that? Let me begin at verse 18, and I can dispense with this wretched thing. (laughs) The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. That is to say, they're without excuse, inexcusable for not worshiping God because God has made himself abundantly clear in his revelation in the created order. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But the result, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you thought that was an incredible thing to say, just think about the way in which the greatest thinkers of our own time, the leading physicists and mathematicians And philosophers are all looking for a single point of reference that will give coherence to the world and the universe. It's very interesting that just in the last few years, there have been leading thinkers who have said, we've got to stop talking about this being a universe. And that's a very logical conclusion. If there is no unifying reality, then there isn't actually a universe. And this is what Paul is speaking about here. God has revealed himself as the creator of all things. Deny this, and you're always looking somewhere or another. Stephen Hawking's whole life, intellectually, has been about this, looking for a point that will unify the whole of reality. And Paul is saying it's futile. You deny the one who gives everything reality, block him out, and no matter how far you search, you have already rejected the one reality that gives everything its unity. This is a very powerful apologetic argument for Christians today. So although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. They keep pressing back the truth in unrighteousness, says Paul, and the result is that their foolish hearts are darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, my, oh, my, they became fools because what they did was to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then words to which uh, we'll come, perhaps surprisingly, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' final command to the apostles in Matthew twenty eight eighteen to 20. Jesus came, To them, that is, the eleven disciples, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, that is, all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always. Now, just, you know these verses so well, but think of what an odd thing this is to say to 11 men who by the the turn of the century will all be dead and gone in heaven. You are to go into the world and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always. To the very end of the world. See what's odd about that? They're going to be in another world at the end of the world. So, Jesus' promise and therefore his command to them looks beyond their ability personally to go into all the world. And so, the question for them is, you see, Jesus leaves them thinking about this. The question for them is, How are we going to go into all the world with Jesus with us to the end of the age if we're already going to be in another world long before the end of this world? Well, I'm a man under authority, I'm always a man under authority in this uh, pulpit, podium, desk, piece of wood, And not only am I a man under authority, I'm actually beginning the evening series. So if you arrived late and you thought you had forgotten to change the clock, actually this is the evening series (laughs) and you got here just in time. And this is the St. Peter's way of doing things. uh, Our minister and I think our, our elders who don't always agree, I'm sure, with our minister asked me if I would preach a series of messages on the Bible itself. And there are going to be four of these, uh, God willing, and I want to address four, only four particular areas in which we need to think about God's Word and Scripture. The first of them this morning is, why do we need the Bible? That is to say, the necessity of Scripture. Second, how did God give the Bible? And that's what we usually call the inspiration of Scripture. The third is, uh, why do we trust the Bible? And that's what we think of as the reliability and authority of Scripture. And the fourth, how do we go about reading the Bible? And that involves, obviously, the study of Scripture. But I want to begin uh, by asking the question, why do you need the Bible? Uh, maybe a question you've never thought about, you know, being a Christian 40 years, and you're so accustomed to the fact that you've actually got a Bible that you've never asked the question, why, why on earth do we actually need the Bible? Actually, the truth of the matter is that uh, you can't really imagine Western civilization without the Bible. I don't know what happens in the universities in Dundee, for example, in classes in philosophy and in English literature, but uh, I noticed listening to a series of lectures at Yale University in the United States that the professor was almost bent over backwards to be apologetic to these high-flying students by saying to them now I'm, I'm I'm so sorry about this but you're never going to understand this unless I tell you some of the things that are in the bible and uh, it's almost as as though he's saying I know they never told you this in high school but you cannot understand philosophy or literature or life in western civilization without having some appreciation that the biggest symbol, single impact on that civilization is the Christian Bible. I read just the other day uh, uh, some words of Professor David Daniel, who was a great Shakespeare expert and professor of English in the University of London. He says, to try to understand the literature, philosophy, art, politics, and society – of the centuries from the 16th to the 20th, without knowledge of the Bible, is to be crippled. Of course, we want to deny that today, but there is actually no denying it. However embarrassing it is for our contemporary secular world, our world has actually been created more than anything else by the Bible and by the message of the Bible. I wonder if you remember when Mr. Cameron said, was it last year that this is a Christian country, and you would have thought that uh, the, the, the nation had exploded in anger and hostility. How dare you say this is a Christian country? And so our politicians have been retreating a little, haven't they, and been saying, what we need to do is to get back to British values, British values. Well, that's just as embarrassing. Where have British values come from? The truth of the matter is that before the Bible came to these islands, these islands were filled with pagans. British values, whatever they may be, the values of your great-grandfather perhaps, those values were all shaped by the Scriptures. And to me, it's a constant astonishing phenomenon that intelligent people in other areas do seem to assume that if we can just get rid in our society of this usually black leather bound book, if we can just dump this and put it under a shelf somewhere we can get back to being the good old society we used to be. How can people who are otherwise intelligent be so ignorant of history? What our society used to be before the coming of this book was a society of pagans. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the more this book is placed on the shelf, and despised and demeaned, the more we will see the beginnings of pagan practices emerging. And there are many reasons, of course, therefore, why uh, we need the Bible. Just think about this one. It's only the Bible that tells us that God is love. Now, that will bring a look of astonishment to people today, won't it? I mean, the one thing God has got to be today, no matter who you are, is he's got to be love. You know, when somebody says that to you, press them a little. And then press them a little further. And say, how do you know that God is love? And give them some illustrations. We had a powerful illustration last week. How do we know that God is love when airplanes at the will apparently of one man can crash into a mountain taking away the lives of children? Tsunamis, the kind of things that we are all used to. There's only one book that tells us God is love. Confucius won't tell you God is love. Muhammad won't tell you God is love. He may say, may Allah be merciful, but his God is not love. There's only, there's only one source, one revelation, one avenue into knowing that God is love. If I can put it this way, only those who believe in the Holy Scriptures have any grounds for believing that God is really love. And their conviction, of course, is not based on our ability to read the strange providences and agonies of life, but in the revelation that God has given to us in his word, that he sent his only son to enter into these agonies of life, to die for us on the cross. God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, says Paul, Christ died for us. And so without the Bible, without the Bible, our civilization would be wholly different. It wouldn't actually be what we call civilization. Without the Bible, we would have no, no sure knowledge that God is love. But there are many other reasons why it is that we need the Bible. Let me just list a few of them. The first is this but it's only because we have the Bible that we can come to know God, or to put that negatively, to to force it home to us. Without the Bible, we can never really come to know God. God has revealed himself, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, made himself clear to us. But our eyes are blind and our hearts are hardened and all that that revelation in creation does to us is render us utterly inexcusable. You know, some people rather uh, arrogantly say, uh, for example, what are you doing here in church on a Sunday? I can, I can worship God as well on the golf course on Sunday. Now, I've known many golfers in my life. I've never met one of them who has actually worshipped God on the golf course on a Sunday. Never. Usually they're irritated with God, or their clubs, or their ball, or the golf course. But I've never seen somebody, now I don't sit with binoculars like a Pharisee looking at people on golf courses on Sundays wondering what they're doing. I can't imagine anyone is in one of those sand traps taking six shots to get out and saying, Lord, I magnify your holy name. Now, what Paul says here is is as plain as the nose on our face. We don't love the Lord because of his revelation and creation. We suppress that knowledge of God. And you and I meet many people who actually deny his existence. And Paul is saying here, actually, at the end of the day, there's no way of denying his existence. All you can do is suppress and repress your knowledge of it. But you know he's there. Again, this is one of his powerful pieces of apologetic. Every atheist, every agnostic, every God-denier you meet knows that God is. And witnessing to them begins with pulling out the strands that stick out of the cloth of their life that indicate that uh, they actually can't even think about a universe without recognizing that there is a God who created the universe. And since he is so invasive in history, you have to suppress that knowledge, repress that knowledge. But Paul is saying this is where we are by nature. And we can't come to know God unless God provides a new revelation of himself, and that new revelation, of course, is the story that we read in the pages of Scripture. Indeed, this knowing God, as as David read in our call to worship this morning in Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four, this knowing God is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Remember how Jesus prays in John seventeen. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. And this is what happens when we open the Scriptures. We open the Scriptures and we know this is not a book of self-help, but this is a book that speaks to us about how God has revealed himself in history, and especially how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ of course, somebody might say, well, if God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus Christ who saves us and not the Bible that saves us, then at the end of the day, we don't really need a Bible, do we? But there's a second reason we need the Bible, and that is because the Bible preserves us and protects us from distorting the revelation of God. Of course, in theory, it's what God has done in history, what he has done in Jesus, that really saves us. But just imagine God had done that and not given to us through the prophets and the apostles both a written record of that and his own interpretation of that. Just imagine that for a moment imagine Jesus had died on the cross and and, and risen again, and there was no written interpretation of that. Do you think that there would be an authentic account of the gospel left in the 21st century? I mean, most of us have gone to these miserable parties where you know, they have these horrible games and you're all sitting around like Stookies in the room and somebody whispers a sentence to the person who's beside them and it goes around the room and, uh, you know, what is guaranteed is that there's going to be hilarity at the end because 20 grown up people do not have the short-term memory capacity to give an accurate account of 25 words. And so, you see, there is actually something wonderfully kind about the way in which God has given us a record of how he revealed himself and what he did. And not only a record, but these things happened. But what the Bible does is, it's as though God comes and sits down beside us and says, now, let me tell you what this actually means. Why is that important? For this reason. Imagine yourself sitting at the cross around the year 30 AD. There are three crosses. One man in the middle is dying. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does that mean? How do you know that what is happening here is that Jesus is dying for our sins? You say, well, I would know. If I I, I was that near, I would know. You You would not make any distinction between that man and the other men on each side. No distinction at all. All you'd be able to say would be, Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. And when he died, he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said some strange words to one of the thieves. And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit and so, at the end, although it was so horrible, he, he died a terrific hero's death. That's all you would see. So, how do you know, as Paul says, that Christ died for our sins? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? Christ died for our sins. We know this because of the Scriptures. And so, not only do we need the Scriptures to have the revelation of God given to us that we may know Him, but even at the most basic level, in the second place, we need the Scriptures in order to preserve that revelation so that we we know it's, it's, it's a true account of what took place, and along with it, we're given the key to understand it. And there are so many things in the Scriptures like this, where we need the key to understand what it was that actually happened in the Bible record. But then there's a third reason why we need the Bible, and it's this. The Bible is actually our only source for knowing the Son of God. So in the first place, the Bible teaches us how to know God. In the second place, the Bible preserves for us the revelation of God. But in the third place, the Bible is actually our only source. Let me underline that word only. It's our only source for our knowledge of the Son of God. Now, just let me imagine I can collect all the Bibles in the world, every single one of them, and we can can put them somewhere underneath the building in our imaginations. There are, there are no more Bibles. And we've got this giant machine that takes out of people's minds everything they've ever read in the Bible. If you can imagine that. Now, here's my question. Will somebody please tell me something about Jesus of Nazareth? What do you know about Jesus of Nazareth apart from the Bible? well, there are so many books about Jesus of Nazareth. No, there aren't any books about Jesus of Nazareth if there is no Bible. It is as important as that. You know, you must have shared the kind of irritation that I sometimes feel, unless you've caused this irritation, when people say, you know, the way I like to think about Jesus is... You know, the way I like to think about Jesus is. And we're, we're very polite people, especially in Dundee. We're extremely polite people. And we don't say to them, you're talking out of a hole in your head. How you like to think about Jesus is completely irrelevant. The Jesus you like to think about is a figment of your imagination. You know, you, you might like to think that, you know, Whatever, it's utterly irrelevant what you like to think. The only thing that matters is, what's the reality? And the truth of the matter is, apart from a few flying fragments in ancient literature, because Jesus was crucified and something happened, there was a riot in Rome, and somehow or another it seemed to be associated with somebody called Crestus. And so the emperor threw all the all the Jews out of Rome. Um, Are these floating references that we find, for example, in the literature of antiquity? What do we do about these strange people called Christians? We think they may be cannibals because they speak about eating flesh and and drinking blood. You know absolutely nothing about Jesus if there isn't a New Testament. Absolutely nothing about Jesus if there isn't a New Testament. Ah, but you say, but people have dreams about Jesus. And I've heard of all these people in the the Middle East who, who have dreams about Jesus. Just, you know, don't be so naive when you hear these things. Say, what did Jesus look like in this dream? And what does he look like in many of these dreams? He looks astonishingly like the Jesus of Western art. He doesn't really look like he lived in Palestine in the first century. And, uh, oh, but there are, there are Muslims who have these dreams. Don't you know that uh, Muhammad knew a great deal about Jesus? Don't you know that Jesus is in the Quran? I have no doubt whatsoever that God in his providence uses dreams, but these dreams don't take place in total isolation from the revelation that's been given and actually came to Muhammad in a distorted fashion from the pages of the New Testament. So, we know nothing about Jesus apart from the New Testament you know absolutely nothing about Jesus apart from the New Testament. And what's the challenge of that? The challenge of that is if I don't know the New Testament, then the, the Jesus I think about is actually partly a figment of my imagination as well. That's, the, that's a kind of horrifying uh, takeaway for me as a Christian. I could be kind of, I could be kind of making up my own Jesus from bits I know about the New Testament, and then the way I like to think about Jesus. is So, how important is this book? This book is so important that without it, Christianity falls to pieces. There is no Christianity, because you and I have no access to Jesus, the real Jesus, apart from the way in which God teaches us about His Son in the pages of the Scriptures. So, the Bible teaches us how to know God, because otherwise we are just inexcusable for not loving Him and trusting Him and worshiping Him. The Bible protects us from distorting the revelation that God has given us in history, and especially in Jesus. The third reason, because We have no knowledge of the Son of God, Jesus, apart from the pages of the New Testament. And there's a fourth reason, and that is this. It's because of the Bible that we're able to reach the world with the gospel of God. It's because of the Bible that we're able to reach the world with the gospel of God. Those words that we read when Jesus speaks to the apostles, how, how could they have made sense of this? That they, I mean, this is, there are only 11 of them, how are they going to make disciples of all nations? You know, this, you know, what, how do I close the gap between that command and the fact that we are in one of these nations, one of these all nations, and we become disciples? How is that gap closed? what did they think about this? I mean, imagine them kind of trooping back to Jerusalem and saying, what on earth did he mean that we're to make disciples of all nations? You know, we're, we're, uh, we're just past the period when we've been locking the doors for fear of people coming and taking us away. How are we going to do this? Well, Jesus hadn't left them to, to make up their own plan, had he? Do you remember what he said to them in the upper room? He said, now, I have many things to teach you, and you're not able to take them in yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, something really remarkable is going to happen to you men, to you men in this room. He's going to remind you of everything I said. He's going to lead you into the truth of who I am. And he's going to show you the things that are to come. He says this in John chapter 16. And then in John chapter 17, you remember Jesus begins to pray. He prays about himself. He prays about his apostles. And then he prays for everyone who will ever come to believe in him through their word. And those are the specific words that John records in John chapter 17. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word. And isn't it interesting, at, at the kind of climax of John's gospel, before he has the epilogue, at the climax of John's gospel, incidentally, I want you to know that the reason I've written these things is so that Jesus' prayer will be answered, that you will come to believe in him. So here, within John's own gospel, we are given a clue that John himself understood what Jesus was saying, that they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, and that this would go on till the end of time. But, I mean, how can 11 of us do this? Oh, now I remember. He said the Holy Spirit would enable us to remember what he had said, to interpret what he had done. He would show us the things that would lie in the future And if we are going to make disciples of all nations, then somehow or another this needs to be put in more permanent form. We can't go everywhere and we can't last forever. And so even by the time he was running out of ink or running out of papyrus and uh, coming to the end of his gospel, maybe he needed a separate little piece of paper for chapter 21, he wrote down, he says, before, before I get to the end here, you can almost imagine I'm now scribbling in the margins, you know, a wee arrow. You know, you see students do that in exams now when they've forgotten something, don't they? We arrow over the page. Well, one thing you need to be sure about is the reason I wrote this book is this book is in part the way Jesus' prayer that people will come to believe in him is going to be answered. And isn't it interesting? Historically, I think it was true all through my Christian life, if somebody became a Christian, what was the first gospel they were told to read? I would have said actually read Mark's gospel for some strange reason. It was always John's gospel. You see, John got it and he understood. And actually, if you read the the rest of the new testament with this thought in mind that these apostles realized that part of jesus calling to them was to give the whole gospel to all the nations for all time and that the only means of doing that would be if they recorded the truth of the gospel then you'll not be surprised at the little notes they strike all the way through their writings that they realize there is a divine commission in what they are doing. And so this is of huge significance, really. And then when you think about it in the whole gospel enterprise, what's one of the first things that missionaries historically have wanted to do? Is to translate the Bible into the language of the people to whom they are speaking the gospel. And one of the reasons they want to do that is because uh, when they're gone, the gospel will still be there. The, the scriptures get into places today where missionaries can't get into. Isn't that true? And so in this marvelous way, the scriptures are given to us to enable us to reach God's world with God's gospel. So, the Bible is there to teach us how to know God. It's there to prevent us from distorting the revelation of God. It's our only source for knowledge of the Son of God. It enables us to reach the world with the gospel of God. And then there's a final and very personal reason. The Bible means that each one of us can have our own copy today of the Word of God. Um, This is what drove William Tyndale, isn't it? Um, David Daniel, whom I quoted at the beginning, English literature professor, Shakespeare scholar, is famous for having said, no William Tyndale, no William Shakespeare. Now, you probably don't read Shakespeare any longer, you know, reading Ogden Nash or somebody nowadays. Now, why is that the case? Uh, Because what Tyndale did, translating the Bible into English, and actually transforming the English language in the process, was to express a passion, as as he said to one fellow academic. When I have translated the Bible into English, the plowboy will know more about Scripture than you do, my friend. And we can all have our own copy of the Bible. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, I mean, when you stand back and think about it, it, everything God does has a touch of genius about it, doesn't it? But, I mean, this really has a touch of genius about it. And it's, the, the, the amazing thing is, because of the folly of the church, and those long years when the church thought that it was too dangerous for the people to have the Bible. And of course, as soon as the people had the Bible, the authority structure of the church began to collapse as people saw what the Bible really taught. But it means every single one of us. I've still got the Gideon's New Testament I was given when I was, I think, 11 years old or 12 years old. It's in some bashed condition. I've lost it at least twice. It's been sent back to me because I had my address on it. I was in a, meeting, a dinner once at the seminary I taught in where those uh, the 23rd Psalm, which in my version was translated into about 24 different languages, we handed this round at a seminary dinner, and every single one of those languages was read out. Every single nation eventually having copies of the Word of God and every single believer having copies of the Word of God. I'd be amazed if most of us don't have five copies of the Word of God. And, and we've got it ourselves. I mean, think about it this way. You're a, you're a, you're a young woman and uh, some wise young man has fallen in love with you and he's everything that your parents could desire and even better everything you could desire and he writes this letter to you and in it he he tells you it's a long letter it's far too important to send by email he's written it in his beautiful handwriting in a fountain pen with ink that has the aroma of utter devotion about it And he's telling you the whole story. Nobody else is interested, incidentally, in the whole story. How I saw you. Remember the Roberta Flack song? The first time I saw your face, I thought the sun rose in your eyes. And I, I thought there is no way. And then we came to know each other. And then if he's a Christian, all these little providences of God that he wants to put into it to reassure you he's on the right track and you'd better believe him and then the story unfolds of his love and, and how he's never met anyone like you and how much he has already done I mean it's like Mr. Darcy isn't it how much he's already done and how you misunderstood him and uh, but now you love him what would you do with that letter well, you put it into the shredder, don't you? You get one for, get one for 30 pounds at, at wherever Staples went to. It's probably Curry's or somewhere now. That's what you do. I mean, it's, it's only paper. Yeah, ink, my goodness, it's not even printer ink. It's, it's ink, ink. You have any idea how expensive ink, ink is these days? It's horribly expensive. Now what do you do? You've still got it. You show your grandchildren it. It's the story. And you, when you're apart before the day of your wedding, you, you take this out and you, you read it over. And then if the time comes when he's gone and you're left on your own, you get that letter out, don't you? And you, and you read it again and you, you refresh your, your own soul through, through what you read. And, you know, that's just a fellow human being who takes up six feet by two by anything between six and 18 inches. It's, you know, it's, it's just a mere man. No, nobody else sees very much and him, just a mere man, but that letter... What is it that gets into us that when God gives us his love letter, we don't do the same thing and don't read it that way? But if you think about all of these reasons why we need the scriptures, they really do boil down to this, that God loves us and he wants us to know him and especially he wants to tell us all about the Savior who came to die for us. It really is that important. And you've got one or two or maybe half a dozen. So get the love letter out and read it and read it and read it and read it until you're amazed by the story of how much he has loved you. Our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have given us this book. We know it's a big book, but we know it's full of small books, many small books. And we know that every word that is in it is a word of your love to us, to draw us to yourself, to help us to trust in your Son. And we pray, Lord, that you would refresh our desire to read it so that we may know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically please visit the website of SOLAS the Centre for Public Christianity at solas-cpc.org Once again that website address is solas org Thanks for listening.